Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, March 11, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, political scientist Ian Bremmer joins Dean Merritt E. Janow to discuss what he sees as failures of globalism. Thank you very much. It's a real privilege to be here and to have a conversation with my friend, Ian Bremmer, who we uh, had such a conversation a year ago. It was terrific. And now we have another opportunity around what I understand is your 10th book. So congratulations. Could you lead us into what your central thesis is? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for all of you showing up. This is a, a fun place to give a speech uh, and uh, have a conversation. And uh, it's great to be back a second time with Dean Merritt, um, who has produced so many extraordinary employees of my firm, SIPA, <laughs> over the years. That is I true. am deeply appreciative. Unfortunately, I don't have to provide royalties. Um, but the, the basic idea of the book, we, we all know how divided this country feels right now. We know how divided, or we should know how divided, much of the West feels right now. The basic thesis of this book is that globalism has failed. Let me be very clear. I do not believe globalization has failed. Globalization being the idea that faster and faster movement of goods and services and data and people across the world has created extraordinary wealth. We've taken a billion people out of poverty just in the last generation. That's an amazing thing. But globalism was the idea that people in the West, people in advanced industrial democracies would benefit from supporting policies of U.S.-led open borders and free trade and the provision of global security acting as the sheriff. And that clearly is not true. Uh, And a large number of people across most of the advanced industrial societies believe that the system is rigged against them and that they have been lied to. So the point of the book is to talk about that. It's to talk about why that's happening, how it's not just happening in the United States, how Trump is a symptom but is actually not the cause of all of this, which is why if you get rid of him in 2021 or 2025, you don't suddenly fix the problems. I know, I'm sorry, all of you. Um, you know, and, and, and about what the implications of all of that are, are going to be for our societies and for the world. Well, you know, I, 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 I feel that it is a very different conversation around the world, around uh, what you're calling uh, globalism. I mean, there are places, even uh, Japan, an advanced industrial society, that, that sees uh, their lives improving and don't have such a dark view about deeper integration into the global economy. Um, China, obviously still a developing country, still you hear many more positive views about uh, the benefits of integration than you do. So, um, so you're really emphasizing sort of what you see as Western sources of concern. Um, and, you know, clearly they're there, but I think we're all trying to figure out um, 
how profound and how profound within our economy and our society. <laughs> Clearly there are those who have been disadvantaged and we haven't found ways of dealing uh, with the dislocations of technology as well as globalization. But you know, how profound is this and how irreversible uh, I'm sure you've thought about. Also, uh, we're definitely talking about advanced industrial democracies. We're not talking about China. I mean, the average American does not feel that the American dream applies to them. And in fact, in the United States, if you compare it to all the other OECD countries, we are best in being able to predict um, the uh, wealth of an individual on the basis of how wealthy their parents were. In other words, less economic mobility today in the U.S. on the basis of that than any of the other OECD economies. In China, the average Chinese is still very much a believer in the China dream. In fact, um, I would argue, and I think you would argue, more so today than 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. The interesting thing is that among the advanced industrial democracies, I would say that this is happening everywhere except Japan. It's not happening in Japan. I'm so glad you brought that up. We did not... Prep this. No, we haven't spoken. Um, though, though I know that you are a great Japan hand. And in fact, uh, I was showing uh, Merit our Marie Kondo puppet <laughs> from Puppet Regime just beforehand because the puppet's Japanese is fantastic, right? You know? No, it's very, very funny. It's extremely funny. I'd recommend it to you. So um, I, will, I, I, I will say that it's, it's so interesting why Japan is the exception that proves the rule. Because if you look at the reasons why we are seeing globalism fail and why so many people are prepared to support AOC or Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. So many people are prepared to support or vote for Brexit or not vote at all in the most consequential referendum of their lifetimes in the UK or go out and support the Gilets jaunes in France, uh, the Yellow Vest, um, or the Italian coalition of the Five Star Movement in the Northern League. And don't get me started about Poland and Hungary and the rest. Four big reasons. Right? One is the hollowing out of the middle and working class and the growth of economic inequality in the United States, higher than at any point since before the Great Depression. So over 100 years, we haven't seen this level of economic inequality. Number two, the opposition, knee-jerk in many cases, to large numbers of immigration, uh, large amounts of immigration. Certainly, that, that was why Merkel was forced to uh, give up her chairmanship, for example, in Germany. But you see in Italy, you see in Spain with the rise of the Vox Party, particularly in the south of Spain now, in response to the northern African immigration. You see it with Trump's success in talking about building that wall. 8.6 billion more requested today is never going to get. But nonetheless, really plays. Um, you see it in response to the United States and our allies fighting forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the foreign policy establishment largely supporting the continuous troop placements in these places, uh, the enlisted men and women and their families certainly not. Um, and finally, technology, as you said, um, not only displacing jobs, but also social media creating so much polarization, um, you know, getting people to only follow the news that they like. Now, those four variables manifest in different degrees and proportions in different countries across the West. In Germany, it's much less about economic inequality. It's much more about anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, in the UK, there's much more of a mix. In France, anti-immigration absolutely playing out very heavily. Um, if you ask the average French person how many Muslims are in France, 
the average French person responds 33%. In reality, it's 6.5%. So, I mean, where do they keep 33% of the population of Muslims? It's a crazy idea, right? Um, but in Japan, right, on the one hand, like, Japan hasn't been growing economically, but because the population is shrinking so fast, per capita, the average Japanese is getting wealthier, even with the crushing debt. So they don't feel like they've lost the opportunities that the American working class and middle class does. Um, in Japan, there's very little anti-immigration sentiment because there are no immigrants. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very hard to get upset at immigration if you're in Japan. You know, they, they actually accepted eight Syrian refugees into Japan last year, which, I mean, you know, we complain. In the United States, we say we're not letting in enough refugees. But, I mean, are the Japanese evil suddenly because they didn't let in any Syrian refugees last year? We say, oh, it's not culture. No, they, they're a wealthy country, the third largest economy in the world. They're not accepting any Syrian refugees because they don't need to. Just like Obama didn't accept refugees. And Merkel said, we're going to take a million. Obama's like, that's awesome. We're glad you're doing that. We're not going to do that. So they don't have the immigration problem. Um, number three, um, they don't, they're constitutionally forbidden from fighting wars. So that's not an issue. And then finally, the fourth one, which is the most interesting one, is that only 39% of Japanese adults are on social media. By far the least of any of the advanced industrial economies. So the average Japanese gets their news from mainstream media in Japan, and they still believe in mainstream media in Japan. So, I mean, you're absolutely, it's fascinating. You're absolutely right. That I haven't written very much about this. I should probably write a piece on Japan's model because Japan has nothing to teach us in terms of growth, but so much to teach us in terms of resilience and stability and quote-unquote harmonious society. And those things, of course, if we're heading into a world of climate change and of artificial intelligence disruptions and of people feeling like the system is rigged, increasingly, we have a lot to learn from a country like Japan. I think it's fascinating. Well, it's, uh, we weren't uh, intending to spend the whole evening about Japan, but let me give you a footnote to say some of my colleagues make the joke that it's the only country in the world that is uh, enjoying a jobless recovery, you know, uh, because it's such a small population that is uh, shrinking. They are letting in more, not Syrian refugees, but they do need uh, a lot of workers. Yes, yeah, some Brazilian uh, laborers, obviously. And, and so forth. So they really are letting in hundreds of thousands of people on, on short-term visas. So it's not quite as resistant. But, you know, I grew up in Japan, and I always expected the change to be faster than it's been. But it's always been a society that's had a middle class, that's had a large part of the population, like 80%, identify itself as middle class. So the sense of well-being and the sense of themselves is, is, is more positive. And, you know, one of the dimensions that I worry about for this country is, uh, you know, there is a tendency sometimes to blame imports or to blame, uh, you know, foreign foreigners or other things for, for the dislocation, some of which are not due to those factors. Because most of my colleagues would argue that technology has been much more of a driver uh, of decline of manufacturing employment than imports, for example. Absolutely. But so how do you untangle uh, how to engage the American public around what are the actual sources uh, of uh, the changes in, in our um, manufacturing sector, particularly 
or more broadly, a sense of human well-being? I mean, you're clearly right that if you look at numbers of jobs being displaced in the United States, manufacturing jobs, I mean, those figures that it's radically more from technology than it's been from jobs moving into emerging markets, that's certainly true. And uh, Cato has done a big study on that that I've seen recently. So it's not as if this is just something that the left is talking about, right? Um, but, you know, the point is that if you're living in a part of the country yeah. that, you know, yes, your goods at Walmart are cheaper, but no one's investing in your infrastructure, no one's investing in your education, no one's investing in the effectiveness of your policing system or your judicial system, you don't really care where it comes from. I mean, you know, I, I read the Na National Enquirer when I was a kid because my mother got it every week um, at the supermarket. I grew up in the projects. Um, it's how I, it's part of how I learned to read because, you know, there were not many words. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there are, you know, there's this knee-jerk reaction in the United States that the people that are reading the National Enquirer, the fake news, they're stupid people. Um, and they're not worth very much. And the people that voted for Brexit, those are stupid people because, look, they don't understand the facts. But I would argue my mother, who dropped out of high school um, to marry my dad, who was an enlisted man, um, uh, she, she felt like she knew a more important truth. And the more important truth that she felt like she knew is that no matter what fancy facts were being thrown at her by the CEOs and the bankers and the mainstream media and the public intellectuals, and God forbid the leaders of the main political parties, they did not care about her family, that they were not going to do anything to make her life and the lives of her children, which was all she cared about, better. And, and I actually think that that fundamental truth is something she didn't get wrong. I think she got that. She got that. Now, she's not with us anymore, so she wouldn't have, um, I, I can't tell you that she would have voted for Trump, but I think she would have. If she hadn't, she would have voted for Bernie. There's no way she would have voted for Hillary or for Jeb. And when I meet people that supported Brexit, I hear the same thing. So I don't think it's about, I mean, I think, I remember when President Bush, W, was arguing that the problem in the Middle East was that we just didn't have someone in the State Department who was explaining our policies to them. If we just got the PR right, and explain why we were doing the Iraq war and why we were promoting democracy and why we needed to have bases in this part of the world, then they would get it. I'm like, I, I don't, I think it's a little deeper than a PR problem. You know, I think fundamentally we actually have to address the fact that America is not producing opportunities for very large numbers of Americans. We have to explain the fact um, that we are leaving an extraordinary number of people behind. They're angry about it, and they're either checking out of the system or they are voting for people that are destructive and are not likely to create fixes. But that's okay. That's the same reason Palestinians throw stones against the Israeli Defense Forces. They're not expecting that throwing stones is going to fix the system. They're just angry that people have been lying for a long time. So I... I agree with you. I think this has been a period where this has revealed itself very profoundly in the United States and around the world. And do you have suggestions in here on how we deal with this from a policy? Uh, of, course I do. of course I do. I mean, but, but let me be clear. Uh, this is, I mean, 10 books. Um, I mean, you know, I feel like this is by far the most unpleasant message I've ever delivered in a book. 
Um, and I think the reason for that is because I feel a little bit like if I were writing about climate change 30 years ago, if, if I had been a climatologist, because you would see that these problems have been built up for decades and they're structural. And let's face it, if you really understood climate change 30 years ago, you would know that this is going to get worse. And you would have some ideas of what some of the solutions might be, but you would also know that we didn't have enough of the experiments at scale to understand that, well, we need to bet all on solar because in 30 years' time, solar is going to be cheaper than coal during the day, and that's going to be a big part of the solution. You know, you might have been a believer in cold fusion. Sorry, got that wrong, right? I mean, if I look as someone as a political scientist focused on these issues today, I'm not a believer in universal basic income. I will tell you, I'm skeptical. Because I think that when you do it, you especially in larger countries that are heterogeneous, not smaller homogeneous countries, you tend to then say, we've taken care of these people, we wash our hands of any further responsibility. The potential for it to cause greater structural inequality over time, a la Saudi Arabia, right, is higher than I would like. But I also firmly recognize that we have not rolled out UBI, universal basic income. We haven't experimented with it on large enough scale for me to feel confident about that. So I'd like to, I'm delighted that in Stockton, California, we are trying this out. I'm delighted that in a large state in India with a few million people, they're trying UBI out. I think we need to experiment. I think we need experiments in universal lifetime training and education. I think it's very important. I think we need to have, I'll tell you one concrete thing. It's a, a, a suggestion I think we need to do today. How many of you are familiar with a company called MTurk? Show of hands, MTurk. Anyone? One person, two, three, but you're married. So, I mean, or, or, or you're clearly very friendly. I see that. Um, they're on the balcony. It's sweet. I like it when it's date night uh, and we talk geopolitics. Don't look. Don't look. Um, so, anyway, um, MTurk is a company that is used by Amazon, and, and all the tech companies have companies like this. And because we all talk about how technology is getting rid of you know, manual labor, but actually much more quickly, technology is taking intellectual labor and making it into piecework, right? So in, in other words, you, know, you look at a company like Amazon and you realize they have so much fewer employees than companies with similar you know, sort of um, uh, wealth production did 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And it's not because they don't need labor. They do. But AI has allowed them to take the labor they need and make it into intellectual piecework so that they can have a system where an individual comes on and they get paid a cent or two cents or five cents for responding to that intellectual piecework. And if they're really good, over an hour, they can make seven bucks and a quarter. And there are hundreds of thousands of people working for Amazon on MTurk maybe even millions over the course of the last year. And we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because our government doesn't actually collect data on that employment. That's a real problem. It's called ghost work. Um, uh, it, it's a real problem because, of course, these people, they don't have arbitration. They, they don't have the ability to organize as functional labor. So at the very least, one concrete thing we could do right now 
is take all of the intellectual labor that has been displaced into piecework, and we can regulate it. Let's get data. Like, I hate it when we try to form policy in the absence of data. I really hate that. So at the very least, I would like to see, like, maybe not AOC, but at least the presidential candidates on the Democratic side that have signed up for the Green New Deal, who say that they care about all these young new workers, I would like them to say, we are going to have regulations that's going to create real data and accountability around all of the people engaged in intellectual piecework for all of these big tech companies. I would like to see Elizabeth Warren talking about that before she tells me she's going to break them up, which she clearly doesn't have a plan for, right? That, that, for me, that would be a concrete thing to do. But let's be clear. There is no political force in the U.S. or major European countries, even Canada, that, are, that have a solution to this. In the same way that I know Justin Trudeau is a fantastic green environment guy, much more than Donald Trump. And yet, since he's been prime minister, what's he doing? Approving new pipelines. Why? Because it matters for his economy. So let's not pretend. I'm going to see Germany where they aren't on nuclear power right now. I mean, you just don't have the structural fixes that are going to respond to this in a big way in the near term, which was why I felt, final point, final point. I thought about writing this book in 2009 because of the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? And I didn't do it. And I didn't do it because I felt like, you know, within a year, Occupy Wall Street's going to be gone, end up being a few months, and no one's going to care, and no one's going to read the book. And that was probably right, but I feel really badly about that. I mean, with, with, with who I was at the time and, my, and, and the reach that I had, I needed to have done more personally. And I will tell you, one of the reasons I don't beat up on Trump very much publicly is because I feel complicit in being part of the problem that over the last 20 years, 25 years as a political scientist, how much did I really do to try to make the public aware of this problem? The answer is not as much as I could have done. And until I'm doing more than that, I don't think my primary role should be beating up on Trump. I think it should be focusing on what the underlying problems are. So I'm just, I'm sharing with you a little publicly, but you asked the question, I think it's important that we have this conversation. Well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that you can see at this moment is um, the use of trade instruments, uh, uh, you know, not only to get tough with our trading allies and negotiate better deals and so forth, but also a sense that... Uh, you know, vilification of trade in the sense that if we erect more barriers, uh, that it will help the United States. And, and to me, that's very troubling because we have to deal with the problems of dislocation, but I don't know many economists who think that the answer is for the U.S. to, you know, pursue uh, uh, increased tariffs as a national strategy. And, and the retaliation uh, that already the tariffs have produced and the consequences, you know, are quite concerning if we don't reach uh, a forward progress. So, you know, I have spent my life in trade, and it feels like a time when it's easy to point to the failures of international organizations, the WTO, the bank, the fund, etc., very hard to recreate them, and some offer a kind of baseline of protection. Uh, for the United States uh, in a globalized world, right? But that most people don't have much engagement with these institutions and associate trade with uh, part of these problems. So 
How would you engage that problem, or do you agree with that, or do you have a different view? No, I, of course I agree. I mean, again, I, I support globalization. It's created a lot of wealth. Free trade is a part of that. I mean, if you want to beat up on China, at least we should have joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, you know, which would have allowed for alignment with our allies, um, Canada, uh, Mexico, um, you know, I mean, all of these major Asian economies, Japan, we're talking 40% of the global economy, right? And I know you agree with that. I do. Um, and almost everyone in this room agrees with that. But again, I'm deeply sympathetic that if we're not going to fix this problem for the average American, and all they're going to do is protest then protesting against things that are going to hurt us makes some sense. I mean, it's like Brexit. Voting for Brexit is not going to help. It's going to hurt the British economy. It's already hurt the British economy. But at least it's maybe gotten the attention of some of the people that are leaders that they need to do something. So, yeah, there's no question that opposing free trade is cutting off your nose despite your collective face, but maybe your collective face needs fighting. Um, that's, that's the question. And in other words, until it actually hurts the people that are making decisions, then what's going to make us pay attention? Um, and because there's no question that opposing free trade is objectively stupid for our economy and the global economy. And, and you know, furthermore, I mean, if it, I, I do believe, if we're going to get into the public, to the, the public headlines right now, I think there's going to be a, a real headline deal between the Americans and the Chinese in Mar-a-Lago. I feel pretty bullish about that. I think the Chinese have a, you know, the economy is getting a little weaker and they recognize they need to get something done. And unlike on North Korea, Trump actually sent a team to get something done, as opposed to thinking I could do it myself with one meeting with Kim Jong-un. The Chinese, same. Um, but I also do believe that Trump is very likely, on the back of that deal, to go and hit the Europeans with automotive tariffs. And I think the impact that's going to have on us strategically long-term is bad. As a policy maker or advisor, if I were one, I would oppose that. But again, if you have me talking to people that are living, you know, in third-tier cities or in rural areas in America, and you want me to make a credible argument to them as to why they should support free trade, I don't have one. Mm -hmm. I'm being honest with you. And I'm not prepared to pretend. It's not good enough to just tell them, oh, this will work. It's going to be good. Because what you're really telling them is it's going to be good for shareholders. It's going to be good for the global economy. It's going to create global growth. And don't worry, it'll trickle down. That's what we're telling them. And that feels awesome from the perspective of the Upper West Side. It really does. Even better from the West Village, if I'm being honest. <laughs> As someone who used to live on 77 the West End, I've, I've, I've moved. I've moved. Um, but, you know, I, um, I do think that um, that's not enough of an answer. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. I think we can do better. We have to do better. We're way we too to wealthy to not to give them that answer. So let's talk a little bit about, I think uh, my role today is to provoke you. It seems quite <laughs> easy to do. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, but I'd like to provoke you in another direction, uh, which is to sort of think, I know you think a lot about the changing geopolitical uh, trends uh, in the world today. And um, although this book is focused um, so much on um, the antipathy to the moment we're in within uh, advanced uh, Western societies, I think there's a, a bigger set of adjustments going on around the world that you also think about 
Could you comment on the dimensions you think are most important uh, to, to focus on? So, I mean, if this book is primarily focused on the um, deepening lack of legitimacy of institutions, political institutions in the West, and that's one big piece of why the U.S.-led geopolitical order is eroding and will not return, in my view. Um, I think the other components of that geopolitically are most obviously China, which is not experiencing this problem, as you rightly pointed out, in addition to Japan at the beginning. Um, and that the Chinese, as a much more powerful country today than they were 10, 20 years ago, not just economically, but also technologically, China today is a technology superpower. And yes, they stole a lot from us to get to that point, but they're now there. So it kind of almost doesn't matter how they got there. They're now there. We'd have to form policy to respond to the fact that like, they are increasingly our peers <coughs> in, in some of the world's most transformative technology. And they're building an alternative structure. I mean, as you all know or should know, Google and Facebook and Amazon are not in China. And they're not going to be. And the Chinese have their own. They've got Baidu. They've got Alibaba. They've got Tencent. And they're building that out, not just for China, but increasingly for the countries where they have economic dominance through Belt and Road. That is a big challenge for us. Um, that is helping very much um, to undermine the ability of the Americans to continue to lead the global order, even if we wanted to. And then you've got the Russia issue. And unlike China, the Russians are in decline. The Russians are not looking forward to a glorious future right now, but they blame us for that. With some justification, but not, not wholly justified. But the point is that the Russians are deeply trying to play and prey upon divides inside our societies, as well as divides within Europe and divides within the broader transatlantic relationship. So you've got the West, which is being undermined by the failure of globalism perceived by large numbers of people in our societies inside. You've got the Chinese, who are, um, in a sense, but building an alternative system that's competitive with ours. You've got the Russians in decline that actively want to undermine our own systems. And then final point is you have technology. <coughs> which 10 years ago, 20 years ago, was largely empowering individuals and liberal democracies at the expense of authoritarian totalitarian regimes. Today, you have technology, which is actually driving polarization inside Western societies. It is helping the Russians to take advantage of those divisions and one could argue, this is the most controversial of the points of technology, it is making it easier for a Chinese state capitalist authoritarian system to maintain political stability through systems, nascent systems like social credit, where they can help channel uh, patriotic behaviors of their population. So certainly at no point in my lifetime have we ever seen a geopolitical period that was this troubling in its trajectory. I think we can we can be pretty clear about that. Let me let me start with the technology point because it's an area that I I have uh, concentrated on a lot in trying to build out you know cybersecurity capacity at Columbia University and thinking about the intersection of technology and public policy. 
And I think of it as an amplifier. You know, it's an amplifier of uh, whatever the trends are within societies. You know, and and and, and it's not all bad, of course. Um, so, it's been a fantastic uh, instrument of entrepreneurship across countries. Right? It's been. A, it's also been an opportunity of inclusion. And we're seeing a lot of creative endeavors around that uh, for people and societies that were never connected, uh, uh, able to, to uh, use digital payments and other instruments to advance uh, you know, human welfare. So, I mean, I, I'm feeling that that characterization is the dark side of technology, but there is another side to technology. So I, I broadly agree that technology, both historically and today, its most important manifestation has been a megaphone, has been a multiplier. But I think it is not suitable to only view it that way. A couple other things I would mention. One is it really matters who's writing the algorithms. So, I mean, when you have algorithms in the United States that are being written by largely white men that are coding, they will create algorithms that work really well for white men that are using the technology and maybe not so well for others. Um, We see that a lot. Um, A second point that I think is more important and fundamental, which is that um, there is a big difference between the communications revolution with lots of people with smartphones in Egypt during the Arab Spring that were communicating with each other to help bring down the regime, and surveillance and Assad bringing in a few hundred Russians with computer capabilities to help him identify who the Syrians were that were using technology to um, oppose his regime, identifying them, finding them, arresting them, getting rid of them, and within six months, no more moderate opposition in Syria. But the, when the technology, simply the ability to use big data and, and deep learning to, to, to appropriately or inappropriately surveil, and now we see the Chinese doing that with um, a million Uyghurs who are in uh, re-education camps, uh, that was not something that these technologies were capable of doing 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I, I do think that there has been a shift from technology uh, really being more bottom-up but multiplying to technologies being more top-down now and multiplying. They're more, I think, in other words, there's a, it's always multiplying. But I would argue that in 2019, the force multiplier for technology empowering governments and corporations to more effectively sort, surveil, and profit is a greater force multiplier than the force multiplier allowing individuals to gain information, coordinate, and undermine with transparency what big corporations and governments are doing. And that, that those force multipliers were flipped 10 years ago. So I, I would make that argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're certainly seeing um, um, a lot of appropriate attention to particularly uh, those entities that are amassing huge amounts of data and utilizing them. Sometimes it's the government and sometimes it's firms, and we don't really have policy frameworks uh, you know, that know how to deal with this. And we have very different regimes developing around the world. Um, in you know, Some of our toughest disputes are with Europe. Uh, over privacy and security as well. So it's not just a U.S.-China 
schism. No, and to, and to bring go back to your point on trade, which is the technology equivalent of that. Which is if we if we believe that we have a problem with the Chinese on technology building authoritarian alternatives to what the Americans are doing, then it's probably not the smartest thing to talk about fighting our own tech firms, right? It's like, do we want to fight the Chinese? Or do we want to fight the American tech firms? Or do we want to fight the Europeans on regulation? Like, if you want to fight the Chinese, then you need to recognize that these American tech firms are the equivalent strategically of Lockheed and Raytheon and Northrop in the 70s when we were fighting the Soviets. And you need to recognize that the Europeans need to be aligned with the United States and what we're doing on tech. There's no third way. And if we're about to launch into a trade war and tariffs against the Europeans, you think the Europeans are likely to support our policies against Huawei? No way. Right? Instead, what we see is the Brits saying Huawei is cheaper, so let's not align with the Americans on that. You see the Italians just last week saying, we're going to formally join Belt and Road. You have the National Security Council in the United States posting, we strongly oppose Italy doing that. And of course, they do that because it's not like we have an alternative policy. So if we have no alternative to Belt and Road, we should just say we don't want you to do it. It's not a strategy. So you're raising a very important question, which is uh, in a period of antagonism uh, between the United States and our allies, even if we are aligned fundamentally in our concerns about China, will this strategy pull us apart? So that, that I certainly agree with. So let's talk about other parts of the world that you think about. I know that you travel the world. You have recently, uh, I think, uh, been in Israel and thinking about the Middle East. How do you think about that part of the world? Um, we've got elections coming up in Israel. Um, it's close to a coin flip. Um, there is uh, Netanyahu is, of course, running um, with uh, the threat of um, indictment from his own attorney general on him. He refers to it publicly as a witch hunt. <laughs> Never heard that before. Um, I think he could win. He's winning. Uh, he's running, by the way, basically with Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at Netanyahu, if you look at his advertisements, if you look at his billboards, I mean, the support from Trump is enormously important for his um, election. Um, the uh, primary opponent he's running against, uh, Mr. Gantz, uh, the blue and white party that he just put together, uh, his security policies are identical to Netanyahu. Also, by the way, it's the first time I've ever seen an election for a head of state where one of the candidates has not in any way articulated what his economic policies would be. Gantz has not done that. Literally, no nothing. We do not know. It's kind of weird. Um, but he's running... Uh, basically saying, I'm going against King BB, no corruption, I'm clean. It's interesting. Could go either way. But the, the relationship with the U.S. will still be very strong, very structural, and Israel is in a very good place. They don't have to worry about making a deal with the Palestinians because the Palestinians are not a remote threat to them right now. Meanwhile, geopolitically, they're engaged much more with the Gulf states. Netanyahu just met with the uh, Omani, uh, Sultan Qaboos, for the first time, they're engaging with the Saudis and the Emiratis. The Egyptians are great friends right now. The Jordanians. I mean, this is a very good time for the Israelis. And the region's a bad time for the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. But it's always kind of a bad time for the Palestinians. And, and what about the, the relationship between Israel and Saudi? 
Well, I mean, you know, if you realize how much the Saudis need an organization like Palantir in the United States to help them effectively identify and surveil their own domestic opposition, they also think the Israelis are really good. I mean, they agree with Trump on this. The Israelis are really good at building walls. The Israelis are really good at, you know, finding who potential insurgents are outside and inside their borders and doing something about it. So there are shifts going on of significance in, in that Oh, no question. I mean, if you go to the Gulf states today and you ask them, what are your top concerns and priorities in the region? They'll say Iran. They'll say proxy fighting in Yemen. They'll talk about Syria. Um, they'll talk about, you know, um, uh, Bahrain and opposition there. Um, I mean, Israel-Palestine's not even top five. They'll talk about Al-Qaeda and ISIS, of course. They won't talk about Israel-Palestine. Um, and, uh, and, and, and remember, when Trump made his first trip outside the United States, where did he go first? Saudi Arabia, with all the Gulf states coming in. And then where did he go second? Israel. And that was, those were great trips. Then he went to the Vatican, and that was before he signed the Bible, so it didn't go as well, right? Which, I mean, you know, people complain about. But nobody complained when Obama was signing all those Qurans, right? No, what? he didn't do that. No, 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 I'm no, kidding. No. I'm kidding. No. There you go. No, Podcast no, no. audience, okay. Yeah, no, we're paying attention. A little funny. No, no. Um, and, then, and then, of course, he had his, his trip to the main European allies. And, of course, that was kind of a disaster, right? Because they don't like him. So, I mean, I do think, and, and, and if we want to talk about Saudi, well, yeah. two other things. Iran... U.S. has unilaterally withdrawn from the Iranian deal. Yes. Strongly opposed by everyone else in the Iranian deal, including all of our allies. Um, but the Iranians are sticking with the terms of the deal, and they're doing that because they hope that Trump only lasts one term. And Secretary of State Pompeo privately admits that if that's the case, then Trump's strategy will fail, despite tougher sanctions. And the American next American president will go back to the Iranian deal, and strategy works for Iran. They get to get rid of sanctions, uh, or a lot of them. Um, but if Trump wins a second term, um, the Israeli economy, the Iranian economy, which is falling apart right now, the possibility of military confrontation, the Iranians going back to restarting their highly enriched uranium, all the rest, that's a real problem. Final point, Saudi Arabia. Uh, you saw Algeria, by the way, today? Yeah, Bouteflika out, right? He's finally, demonstrations can work, right? Come on, more applause than that. Come on. This guy, this guy, what, 82 years old, hasn't been seen, hasn't addressed the public in seven years, had a stroke in 2013, massively corrupt, not doing anything for the Algerian people. The youth were out on the streets in force, got the military increasingly to show some support. First, they said, okay, we'll keep with the elections for this, this absentee president, but we'll get rid of him in a year. And then just earlier today, they said, okay, he's not going to run again. God bless them. God bless them. Youth on the streets can still make a difference. That's great news. That's great news. Um, and, uh, and in terms of Saudi Arabia, I think that like, Mohammed bin Salman is not going anywhere. Domestically, he has done a lot of things that actually the country needs to do. Getting rid of the religious police and their influence over situation on the ground, the way people behave on a day-to-day basis, making life more better for Saudi kids. Um, letting women drive, giving them an opportunity to actually go to a place of work so they can start working. They're educated, but they're not working. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the opening cinemas and getting sports facilities moving and because Saudi's kids want to have something to do, shocking, right? I mean, those are good things. So has there been a shift, a fundamental shift, do you think, in U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia? Is this Khashoggi uh, case uh, 
had a profound effect or just a transitory one? No, it's not profound. Um, I think there's more pressure on him. And I think that pressure has meant that he hasn't been able to do as much domestically as he'd like to, which is a bad thing in terms of the reforms. It's meant that he can't do as much as he wanted to internationally in the adventurism, which is a good thing. So we now have a ceasefire in the port of Hodeida in Yemen. We actually have engagement in negotiations between the Saudis and Kuwait on Qatar, where the Saudis and the Emiratis had a blockade, which is a good thing. So I think it depends. I think, look, Saudi Arabia is a very complicated story. And America's relationship with Saudi Arabia clearly no longer has the kind of intrinsic interest. I mean, we're, we're producing 12 million barrels a day of oil right now. I think that 10 years ago, that number was half that. So we don't need the Saudis the way we used to. Their population is, lar- is getting larger quickly, but it's not a diverse economy. There's not a lot of American foreign direct investment going. And they are the largest arms purchaser in the United States. So you have the importance of the American defense lobby, and that's not going to go away. And those are real jobs. Um, but, I mean, if you ask me in five, ten years' time, will the Americans pay as much attention to Saudi Arabia? The obvious, obvious answer is no. So we have some wonderful questions from our audience, uh, maybe too many uh, to, to, uh, to cover all of it, but I'm trying to cluster a few. We have a few Russia questions. Let me ask these to you in, in a combination. Uh, is Russia succeeding in causing the breakup of NATO, uh, or are policymakers inadvertently responsible for this? And second, does, China, uh, does Russia see China as a threat um, as much as the United States. No, no. Russia sees China as useful tactically. And, uh, I mean, look, people like Kissinger will say that America and Russia should be more aligned because China's the big problem. China's dominating all the economies in the region. Pakistan, uh, Central Asia, I mean, these are places the Russians think are theirs. But Russia's so, Putin is so angry at America, and for so many reasons that we can't address in 10 minutes, um, that he really is going after the U.S., and the Chinese are seen as useful, at least in the near term. So I, I don't think that becomes a big strategic alignment long term. Um, NATO is not going away. NATO is just increasingly not fit for purpose. I mean, the Russians aren't going to invade the Baltics with tanks. They're going to undermine the Baltics with asymmetric warfare and information warfare and cyber. And NATO is not suited for that. I, I did an interview on my G Zero World show this week. Some of you may have seen it. Um, with Richard Haas, head of the Council on Foreign Relations, who said on public television with me that he did not believe that Turkey was an ally of the U.S. and it should be kicked out of NATO, but there's no way to kick Turkey out of NATO. The head of the Council on Foreign Relations said that. Quite something. Um, I mean, NATO is increasingly less fit for purpose. The Russians are doing what they can to undermine it, but it's not all about Russia. it's, It's fundamentally that these institutions need to reform as the world changes or they will become less relevant. So we haven't talked much about climate change, uh, and we have a couple of questions. They're really about how will international partnerships help or hinder a global fight against climate change? I mean, they'll hinder it, obviously. I mean, if you have an environment where um, the world has less leadership and where the Americans and Chinese don't trust each other and aren't as aligned, and it's no longer an American-led order, then clearly it's going to be a lot harder to get coordination in response to climate change. I mean, a world where the Americans and Chinese are working closely together is much more likely to effectively um, address climate. This is especially true because in the near term, the part of the world that's gonna be most affected 
are some of the poorest equatorial countries, particularly we're talking about in sub-Saharan Africa, with massive population increases, with po absolute poverty levels and malnutrition and hunger that's outstripping even their population increases right now in many of these countries. And how many people are going to care about dealing with that? I mean, the Europeans will care first because those migrants are coming to Europe. Um, but the Americans will not. And one of the big problems we have is that the country that is most capable of responding to big structural global problems like the United States is also the country that is among the least affected by these problems. Migration and refugees, terrorism, even the climate change issue. Now, I do believe that we're starting to pay more attention to climate. You see that with the Democratic candidates that are coming up today. Governor Inslee, certainly from Washington, D.C., making it his issue. You, you particularly see it with something so evocative like the wildfires in California. I mean, talking about all of the economic predations that will occur is hard for people to get their heads around, but actually seeing the wildfires in California and seeing how broadly they affected so many people um, in, in ways that we've just never seen um, these kinds of natural disasters. I, I do think that that's starting to make a real difference in the way they're thinking about it and the way Americans are thinking about climate. Now, how much Americans are willing to spend to respond to the catastrophe of climate, that's a very different story. And they, they see it as a crisis, but they, they, don't, they don't actually think it's something they need to put a lot of resources into. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of questions about uh, your comments on globalization uh, and also about... Uh, U.S. policy environment and what might be done. Um, so one of these uh, questions that repeats itself several times is how much would raising taxes on high earnings and great wealth help persuade people that the U.S. isn't a plutocracy? Well, I mean, if it happens the way we did it last time, which is very high marginal tax rate but massive um, uh, tax loopholes so that no one actually paid it, um, I, I don't think um, it would necessarily make us believe a lot more. I mean, when you ask young people today, and you saw the piece in New Yorker recently, New York Magazine, excuse me, about all the Brooklyn socialism, how many people consider themselves to support socialism as opposed to capitalism, where historically, like, socialism, that's anti-American, right? But today, because they feel like what we call capitalism is actually a system where um, special interests and multinational corporations have captured the regulatory processes of large numbers of sectors in the U.S. Now, if, to the extent that that's true, and it is true to a significant extent, then what we have is not really functional capitalism for these people. So, of course, they're going to say they want something other than capitalism. I do think it is the right strategy, right winning strategy, for Trump and those around him to disparage the Democrats as socialists. Because most Americans would rather see a black president, a gay president, a Jewish president, even, God forbid, a woman president. They would rather see that than a socialist president, right? And so if you're able to demonize the Democrats as a whole as supporting socialism, and AOC is a godsend from this perspective for President Trump, um, I do think that that is a more winning strategy for them, and they're playing into it. Well, speaking of AOC, we have a question here that um, who said recently that we should be excited about automation because it would free people from subpar jobs. Would you agree with that statement? That was not her entire quote. Oh. 
you got to give the whole quote, guys. Don't give fake news on me right here. She said she would be excited about automation because it would free people for their jobs if we did not live in a society where people that don't have jobs are treated like garbage. Now, that is a very evocative way and a somewhat inaccurate way to make the point. But Lord knows for people who are feeling it right now, that are feeling badly for the Bernie voters, and Bernie is, of course, much more name recognition today among people that are thinking about voting than any of those along his lines running for president. I think he's at 26% name recognition right now. Um, it's not a bad line for her to use. Um, in a country that fetishizes growth, in a country where blitzscaling is the way you think about building tech companies, um, then, yeah, our value comes from how much, how many, can we consume more, how many followers we have, all of that. And in that environment, technology that uh, takes labor away is a real problem. I mean, I, I, I think that right now, if, if, if we actually say in today's society there's not enough labor for people, then we're going to create a lot of disposable human beings, as Yuval Harari would say, um, the guy that wrote the book Sapiens, the Israeli philosopher. Yes. I mean, you remember, we used to have a lot of horses in the world. And at the beginning of the 20th century, we no longer needed them for labor. And within one generation of horses, the population of horses was down to 10% of what it was. Now, I don't expect the human population of disposable labor will be brought to 10% of what it was, but I see the way we don't care about Venezuelan refugees. I see three million of them. On average, Venezuelans living in the country in the last two years have lost 24 pounds of weight each. The last two years. Yes, just terrible. These are disposable people, and we, don't, we treat them as disposable people. Uh, we don't feel like we have an obligation to do much for them. I think that the likelihood, if we really do automate all these jobs away, the likelihood that we would functionally treat a lot of those people as disposable is very high. And so it's good that we're not losing all of those jobs very quickly. So time is flying by, and I have an expanding number of questions here. But uh, I think we have just a few minutes left, and I know you're famous for giving very short, rapid-fire uh, <laughs> uh, to, to, to big, tough questions. So let me just throw a bunch of them at you. Okay, one at a time. I'll and see how you do. All right. Um, so if you were president of the United States, what steps would you take to help the middle class? You've been uh, aligning yourself with their pain. What would you do? Uh, a, a lot more um, resource into education and a lot more resource into basic infrastructure. When we talk about the debt, we don't talk about assets. And you talk about corporate debt, you talk about debt and assets. Talk about American debt. If you're, if you're investing in things that are going to create more value over time, then you should do that. That's I would want to spend more money on that. Thank you. As you think about uh, what if the Green New Deal, does this have any impact on U.S. foreign policy? Um, no, uh, except for the fact that the Democrats are talking a lot more about the environment. I mean, it's, it's, this is a kind of a platform paper more than it's a policy. But I, I, I do think that we need ideas. And I mean, you know, let's face it, the only really big new idea that we're coming up with right now is techno-utopianism coming from Silicon Valley and Washington State, which is awesome for the 0.1%, but it's really not good for the average American. So, I mean, I do think that we need 
if we believe that liberal democracy and capitalism increasingly need to be adapted to change to a changing set of realities, then we're going to need big new ideas. I don't think the Green New idea is, New Deal is that, but Lord knows it's better than nothing. I'd like to see more of that. Mm-hmm. We have techno-utopianism and techno-dystopia on the East Coast, so it's a nice counterpoint. I think there's surprisingly little techno-dystopianism that's really out there. Okay, that's another conversation. Yeah. So do you think globalism undercuts the U.S. ability to address human rights violations abroad? Globalism? Not necessarily. I think true globalists would uh, would want to truly uh, talk about the fact that we're all human beings if you really want to get rid of these borders. But I think the application, the manifested, again, the problem is not that globalism in principle is a bad thing. The problem is that globalism that does not recognize your responsibility and accountability to large numbers of people in your society creates all of these imbalances, which then lead to policies that include uh, the, uh, the the throwing out of human rights. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the implications of your comments earlier was that there's an inward-looking tendency that has developed as a result of this that sort of constrains countries like the U.S. from thinking about what's happening in other countries. Agreed completely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that this is a timely group that ends as promised. Maybe one last question um, uh, is... If globalism is failing in the West, what comes next? I think the entire foreign policy establishment in the United States, I really felt this when I was at the Munich Security Conference a few weeks ago, um, believes that if Trump, once Trump goes, we can go back to the U.S.-led global order. That's really, yeah, I know, it's a wonderful idea. It's really wrong. Um, Amer- I don't think America's in decline. I don't think our country's falling apart. Uh, we have so many things going for us. The largest oil producer in the world, largest food producer. We have extraordinary universities. We have all this tech entrepreneurship. We, have, we don't have arms races in our part of the world. We've got these big oceans and you know, Trudeau screwing up north of us, but, but, still, but still a very stable country. Mexico, a very stable country. We have so much going for us. But we, it's over. The U.S.-led global order is over. And going forward, we're going to have to decide, are we going to work with the Chinese to try to create new rules of the road together? Or are we not? And therefore, there will be two very different systems that will be in fairly strong competition with each other. Doesn't mean World War III, but I I do fear that Americans are not yet, especially in the foreign policy establishment, aren't aware that either of those two outcomes is going to be more challenging than the U.S.-like global order that we've enjoyed post-World War II. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.